Hi, my name is Tatiana. Welcome to my podcast, Changing Voices. In this episode, we take a look at Roman poet Ovid's Metamorphoses, one of the most well-known and influential works in Western literature. The Metamorphoses is regarded as Ovid's magnum opus, his greatest achievement, and the poem chronicles the history of the world from its creation to the deification of Julius Caesar within a loose mythico-historical framework. Although written approximately 2,000 years ago, the Metamorphoses has remained ever so prevalent, one of the major reasons being its ability to be retold, reinvented, and reinterpreted every time we read it. New experiences in people's lifetimes will help them find new meanings in this same text. We will always be surprised and enlightened by what our own lives have taught us about how to see the world. Today our focus is on Io. In an attempt to condense this myth into a few sentences, here's my very brief synopsis. Io was a beautiful Greek princess and nigh nymph whom the king of the gods Jupiter, or Zeus if you're more familiar with this Greek name, lusted after and transformed into a cow to conceal her from his jealous wife Juno, or Greek Hera. Jupiter was then forced to give Io as a gift to Juno, who then sent the hundred-eyed monster Argus to guard her. But Jupiter sent Mercury, or Hermes in Greek, to liberate her from Argus, after which she eventually metamorphosed back into her original form. There, a hopefully succinct summary of something much longer and much more elegant. The extent of Ovid's role in modern Western culture, in terms of poetry, theatre, short stories, novels, etc., is so vast that no one has ever dared attempt an extensive overview of the subject. Of course, I will not be the first. In this podcast, we shall look at the myth of Io and the various interpretations of this myth over time. We will first analyze ancient Greek pottery, then Renaissance paintings, and finally modern readings of this myth, with greatest emphasis on the Renaissance paintings due to Ovid's immense contribution to Renaissance culture. He has bequeathed to the Renaissance the art of imagination, as it gave birth to the versatile forms of art which emerged in the era. The poet's inventions are so fundamental to the Renaissance idea of art, and to the very idea of art itself as metamorphosis, something we will investigate more deeply with Correggio's Jupiter and Io. In this podcast, we are focused on the voice of Io, from antiquity to today, and how the way we interpret and listen to this myth over time has only given volume to this character and her story. Just keep listening! We begin with the ancient Greek vase paintings. There is one of Hermes and Argus Panoptes, the all-eyed Argus, now displayed in Vienna. The painting shows the god Hermes standing on the left, grasping the beard of the kneeling, eye-covered Argus on the right, as Hermes prepares to slay the creature with his sword. And by eye-covered, I mean eye-covered, for Argus seems like his entire body is tattooed with eyes. Argus is supporting himself with his left arm as his right one fails in vain to guard Io from Hermes. Behind the pair stands the heifer maiden Io as a cow. We also see Zeus on the far right witnessing the whole scene. There is another vase painting depicting the same moment right before Hermes slits Argus's throat. The same positions and power dynamics are portrayed. We see Hermes drawing his sword as Argus, again seemingly tattooed with eyes, attempts to defend himself to no avail. On the right, there is Io as a heifer again. Our last painting once again depicts Hermes and Argus. Argus Panoptes, again, a man covered in eyes, is wearing an animal skin cape, 
cap and sheathed sword, and brandishing a club. On his right, the god Hermes draws his sword to attack. Zeus and Hera observe the scene on the left. The scene takes place before the temple of Hera, represented here by pillars and an altar on the far right. Although unique in their own ways, these vast paintings all share a few commonalities worth noting. The subject of their paintings is consistently the pair of Argus and Hermes, and our eye is always drawn to the action, and to Argus's eyes. The two men are placed in the center every time. Io, on the other hand, always portrayed as a cow, is in the background. As spectators, we are more concerned with what is going on in the foreground, i.e. Hermes and Argus, than with Io and her unwanted transformation into a cow. She is arguably reduced to her appearance and objectified in cow form. However, they were created in a political climate of ancient Greece, wherein women were hypersexualized. And it was that same political climate that pervaded 8 AD ancient Rome when Ovid had written the Metamorphoses. When she is given attention by Ovid, Io is portrayed as nothing more than a powerless kind of damsel in distress, generating pathos and pity in the reader. Ovid describes Io's experience under Argus's control like so. Quote, by daylight he allows her to graze, but when the sun is below the deep earth, he closes up and puts chains around her innocent neck. She grazes on the leaves from trees and bitter grass. And poor her, she lies down on the earth instead of a bed, not always having grass, and she drinks muddy rivers. End quote. By the way, these quotations from Ovid are my own translations. Most of the time, Io entirely lacks narrative agency, being stripped of her bodily, vocal or expressive and narrative control. Her assault by Jupiter triggers her metamorphosis, and her attempt to write her name in the dirt with her hoof and thus reclaim her identity provokes her father's soliloquy, in which he laments his lost daughter. Quote, Oh poor me, her father Inachus exclaims, hanging on her horns and the snow-white neck of the crying heifer. He repeats, Oh poor me, and are you, daughter of mine, sought throughout all the lands. You, not found, were a lighter cause of grief than you found. You are silent, nor do you answer my words. You only take sighs deep in your chest, and you do the only thing you can do. You move to my words. But I was ignorantly arranging a marriage bed and tortoise for you, and my foremost hope was for progeny, my second for grandchildren. But now your husband has to come from the herd, and now your son has to come from the herd. Nor is it permitted for me to finish such great pains and sorrows with death. But it hurts to be a god, and the closed door of death extends our laments in eternal age. End quote. Io's father seems self-serving and self-involved, more concerned with his daughter's marriage and offspring than with his daughter's actual transformation into a cow. Modern scholars would consider him to be selfish, and I have to agree. His daughter has not only been raped, but metamorphosed into a heifer. But right now, the fact that he will have calves as children instead of humans is more important. But we must understand the time in which these words were written and spoken. Inachus is not at fault. His lament only adheres to Roman tradition, where the voice of lament is transferred over to Io's male relative. If we look for Io's voice, it only has a shadowy presence. She tries to mourn and even seems to mourn but her ability to do so is limited to mooing.
Moving on, Renaissance paintings. The first one we shall analyze is Antonio da Correggio's Jupiter and Io, created in 1532, one of the most famous and significant paintings on this myth. When Jupiter pursued the fleeing Io, he summoned dark clouds in broad daylight in order to keep the object of his desire from escaping and to seduce her in all secrecy, because he feared the revenge of his jealous wife, Juno. According to Ovid, Jupiter says this, quote, O maiden worthy of Jupiter, about to make an unknown male happy with your marriage bed, seek the shades of the deep woods, and he had pointed to the shadows of the woods, while it is growing warm, and the sun is highest with the orb in the middle. But if alone you fear to enter the lairs of the beasts, stay with the god as your guardian. You will pass into the remote areas of the forest, and not a god from the plebeians, but a god I, who holds heavenly scepters with my great hand, who sends wide-ranging thunderbolts. Do not flee from me." End quote. Using a narrow, upright format, Correggio focuses on the erotic union of the god with Io, the mortal daughter of the river god Inachus. Jupiter's face shimmers softly through the grey fog as he kisses her, while his hand gently grasps her waist. The supposed victim seems to have abandoned any thought of escape. In the bottom right corner of the painting, there is a deer drinking water. Jupiter himself has undergone metamorphosis, for he is no longer a god but a grey, wispy, ethereal cloud. The passionate, Jovian storm cloud of Correggio's picture is no longer wholly Ovid's. Although, like Ovid's cloud, Correggio's nebulous form conceals Jupiter's lovemaking. It does not entirely mask the god. Correggio suggestively reveals Jupiter's face above Io's, and the god's hand is seen within the cloud as well. Unlike the cloud in Ovid, Correggio's cloud is an extension of Jupiter's body as it caresses and envelops Io. Correggio's cloud is thus consubstantial with the god's body. The painter makes his dramatic cloud's vaporous character erotically palpable, if not bodily, when he shows the nymph suggestively pressing its form to her. In Ovid, the poet does not graphically portray the rape of Io, which is what it was. He says only that under her cloud, Jupiter caught the fugitive maiden and ravished her. Quote, she had already left the pastures of Lerna, the fields of Mount Lercaeus planted with trees, when the god covered the wide lands with darkness brought over, and prevented her flight and seized her modesty. End quote. Correggio pictures a different story from Ovid's when he portrays Jupiter and Io. He does not render a fleeing, resisting maiden. In fact, and this is particularly interesting to know, he pictures a nymph who, reclining upon the margins of a stream, yields rapturously to the god. Correggio's picture is a relatively rare depiction of female abandon. Jupiter envelops the nymph's luminous form with a dark, anthropomorphic mass that threatens to engulf her and conceal her from our sight. At the same time that Jupiter reaches down for a kiss, Io throws back her head, eager to receive her lover. Correggio presents us with an image of mutual desire and pleasure a romanticization of this, in reality, terrifying and appalling event that is rape. Correggio paints the area beneath Io so subtly that we do not observe the head of a stag that drinks from the stream flowing beneath her. This gives the erotic motif a trace of Christian decorum. Quote, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. End quote. From Psalms 42. In normal English, it means this. Quote, 
like the desire of the deer for the water streams, so is my soul's desire for you, O God. End quote. Correggio's servine image ironically subverts this quote from the Bible. For there is nothing spiritual about Io's ecstasy, only carnal. This painting was created along with the paintings The Abduction of Ganymede, Leda and the Swan and Danae, all myths of rape from the Metamorphoses, on a commission from Duke Federico Gonzaga of Mantua, who most likely gave the two paintings that are now in Vienna to Emperor Charles V as a gift. There was probably a certain reason for doing so. The political significance of depictions of mythological or historical rape scenes. They were widely accepted as metaphors of absolute power in Renaissance Europe. We see another Renaissance interpretation of this myth in Bartolomeo di Giovanni's The Myth of Io. This painting, when read from left to right, illustrates multiple episodes in the second half of the story, in which Io is transformed back into a human. The narrative begins in the upper left. Jupiter emerges from a single cloud and orders Hermes to rescue Io from Argus. Then our eyes travel to the lower left, and we see Hermes disguised as a shepherd, approaching Argus, who in this case is no longer a hundred-eyed monster, but a two-eyed shepherd. Afterward, we go back up to the upper center, where Hermes lulls Argus to sleep by telling the story of Pan and Syrinx. Hermes then beheads Argus and frees Io. Then we go to the lower center and the focus is on an angry Juno, who is mad because her plans were unsuccessful. The goddess uses Argus's hundred eyes and sticks them on the tail feathers of her peacock. In the lower right panel of the painting, Juno sends the three furies to torment Io, who escapes to the Nile River. Then we end in the upper right corner. Jupiter finally convinces his wife to stop tormenting Io and transforms the former nymph back into human form. Io escapes into the woods and becomes the Egyptian goddess Isis, flying off into the sky in the upper right corner. While on the surface this painting might appear as merely entertaining and nothing more, the subtext is made more clear once we understand the context. The painting was originally installed in the wall of the room in the Florentine palace as a spalliera panel. Spalliera panels were often commissioned by the groom's family to celebrate marriages. They usually depict stories with moralizing themes for newlywed couples. In this case, Ayo likely represented the virtuous qualities of a dutiful wife. In Renaissance paintings, while Ayo is featured in these paintings and plays a more prominent role, she is nevertheless a symbol of endurance and of patience. In Correggio's Jupiter and Ayo, she does not resist Jupiter's advances and instead welcomes it. In Giovanni's The Myth of Ayo, Ayo represents the feminine and somewhat passive virtues of forbearance. Spectators who view these Renaissance paintings, at least female ones, are taught to be more like Ayo, to be quiet and accept their loss of voice. Ayo is read differently in a modern context as well. As we read it now, themes of gender and sexuality also emerge from this myth. In July of 2018, a transgender man, Sasha Barish, published a magazine article on Medium titled Iphis' Hair, Io's Reflection, and the Gender Dysphoria of the Metamorphoses. He draws connections between this contemporary concept of gender dysphoria with an ancient text and analyzes Io as well as other myths in the Metamorphoses, looking beyond modern cultural norms. As a transgender man, Barish has experienced immense alienation. Gender dysphoria refers to the distressing feeling 
that some aspect of gender, usually one's bodily characteristics, are wrong. This kind of dysphoria and discomfort is also present in Ayo. She does not feel like she belongs in her body. It is this distress and claustrophobia Ayo drowns herself in. Ovid says, quote, She, as a suppliant, wanted to extend her arms to Argus. She did not have the arms to extend to Argus. When her mouth tried to complain, she let out a moo, and she was afraid of the sounds and terrified of her own voice. End quote. The fear and estrangement from the body embedded in Ayo's tone is heart-wrenching, and so eerily familiar to Sasha Barish and others in the transgender community. Even though we can never draw exact parallels between our 21st century sexual norms, this should not hold us back from expressing the ways we feel connected to them. Furthermore, these comparisons can be especially meaningful for people who are marginalized because of their supposed irregularities. There is something wonderful and validating in the feeling that ancient texts bear some resemblance to one's own situation. By writing about people changing shape, the poet is exploring the relationship between mind and body. He's drawing a distinction between how you perceive yourself and how you are perceived by others. But in doing so, he shows that the two cannot be fully separated. This is similar to another myth of Ovid's, which is that of Iphis and Ianthe. Iphis falls deeply in love with Ianthe. She wishes to marry Ianthe, but knows it is impossible as they are both women. She therefore prays to the Egyptian goddess Isis, who transforms her into a man. Note here, that it is quite significant that Ivis has prayed to Isis, since Io was supposed to have become Isis. What we can see here is that Isis, or rather Io, emerges as a deity who is responsive to universal human suffering, having undeservingly suffered so much herself, and particularly sympathetic to the plight of women. She symbolizes a universality of humanity, love, pain, but more importantly, she represents female empowerment against the established gender norms. So in a way, Ovid was thinking way beyond his time, subverting Roman traditions and exploring the extents to which we can create change. Anyways, going back, when Iphis is perceived as male, she takes on male characteristics, such as attraction to a female. When Io is transformed, both Jupiter and Juno know who she really is but they must both find ways to treat her as human, while seeming to treat her as only a cow. The relationship between the psychological and the physical is something that has been explored since the beginning of time, and it is a powerful theme many can relate to today, transgender or not. We are all trying to distinguish between the body and the mind, living in cultures that assign worth to specific qualities of our bodies. The Metamorphoses deals with this very topic. And this is why we still care for an epic like this one. We also read about gender in Scottish author Ali Smith's novel, Girl Meets Boy, a modern day reinterpretation of Ovid's myth of Iphis. It concerns two sisters, Anthea and Imogen living in Scotland. Imogen works in the marketing department of a large company producing bottled water. Anthea is on work experience in the same department, but then falls in love with Robin, a genderqueer environmental activist. In this modern-day reinterpretation, Ali Smith explores issues of homophobia. For instance, one of the characters, Imogen, is shocked by her sister's lesbianism as she juggles causes, signs, anxieties, and conflicting emotions 
Smith's work is fundamentally a parable about acceptance, dwelling on the fluid, shape-changing exuberance of sexuality. The author toys with modern society's internalized homophobia. As we see the character of Imogen go over every stereotype, bigoted comment, and misconception that we can imagine in ignorant saying, when contemplating the concept that, my sister might be a lesbian. As Emily Dempsey notes in a 2017 review of the book, quote, In adding today's gendered and queer politics, Smith takes the power of ancient Greek romance and pertinently places it in the hands of today's lovers. End quote. Although old, it is evident that the Metamorphoses nevertheless has many lessons to teach us about love, gender, and sexuality. The myth of Io also makes an incredibly important statement about rape and sexual assault. Amid the growing Me Too movement, it is integral that we address another underlying message in Io. Io undergoes suffering in Ovid's Metamorphoses that is simultaneously unique to her own experience, yet also all too easily relatable to today's survivors of sexual assault. Rape is frequently the cause for depriving women's voice and agency. Argus holds tremendous power over Io, stripping her of bodily agency and family, as well as serving perpetually as a fearful reminder of Io's rape and the continually subjugated role she is forced to play in her own story. Ovid writes, quote, Argus had a head surrounded by a hundred eyes. Of these eyes, two at a time captured sleep in their turn. The rest were guarding and staying at their duty. In whatever position he was standing, he was watching Io. Even turned away, he had Io before his eyes. End quote. The monster's role in the story particularly resonates with modern readers of the myth who are rape survivors and highlights the social consequences that accompany sexual trauma. Ayo has no privacy. All her actions are subject to a masculine observer, and her animal state is one of extreme discomfort, indignity, and degradation. Ayo's lack of control over her own body mirrors the recent total revocation of agency that occurred when she was raped by Jupiter. For all that she has gone through, Ayo remains a pawn with no power, merely collateral damage between the gods. Even though this myth revolves around Ayo, she often feels absent from her own story. Ayo sets into motion none of her story's primary events, yet she suffers the most consequences of them. From these different interpretations over time, we are also able to observe humanity's progression toward a more just and more open-minded society. While the myth of Ayo does not change in these 2,000 years, our outlook and perspective toward the matter has. As a character, Ayo's significance only grows, and her story only becomes louder. 2,000 years ago, she was not even the central focus of her own story. The slaying of an 100-eyed monster was. 400 years ago, people began to give her more attention, but she served as nothing more than a symbol of patience and of endurance. Fast forward to now, and Ayo is an emblem of suffering, cisgender or not and she is a call for change. While in Metamorphoses, Ayo might never truly regain the agency she deserves, today we can lend her our voice by telling her story and other similar stories to the world. It is important to remember that we can, and we should, find solace in ancient texts, and there are legitimate reasons why these myths from other times and other cultures resonate with us. Ovid's Metamorphoses contains narratives of marginalized people in antiquity, such as women, 
and rape survivors, and acknowledges the pain such people endured and continue to endure today. All right, that is it. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you learned something new about the metamorphoses. Bye!